Well, we're going to continue our, our sermon series in Paul's letter to the Philippians, and I'm calling it Big Picture Perspective. And uh, I read an article uh, recently uh, from Roger Thompson in Leadership Magazine, and he talked about, and this was probably somebody in the first service after I shared this, this story came up and says, that's true, I've been to Alabama where this place is, and it's, it's pretty amazing. So, listen, so somewhere, I want to say somewhere in the 1800s in Alabama, obviously uh, cotton was a big cash crop, and a lot of farmers would plow as much ground as they possibly could, plant as much cotton as they possibly could, plant for their crop. And year after year, they lived by this, you know, this crop of, of, of cotton. But one year, they had this dreaded pest called the boll weevil who came in, and that year it destroyed the crop. And it was very devastating, as you can imagine, for the farmers. And so the next year, a lot of the farmers had to mortgage their homes and their farms, but they were determined that this year it was going to be better, and they planted cotton again, hoping for a good harvest. But unfortunately, the boll weevil came back and destroyed the crop again and wiping out a lot of those farms, and a lot of people lost everything. There were a few farmers who did survive through these uh, two years of the boll weevil, um, and they decided in the third year to experiment with a different crop. And they had heard about but had never planted before something called peanuts, and they decided to do this. We don't want to take a chance on the boll weevil coming back and destroying the cotton, so we're going to plant peanuts this year. And they did, and uh, the peanuts proved to be so hardy, and the market was so ready and ravenous, as, as the article said, for the product that the farmers who survived those first two years uh, of the boll weevils reaped these profits that year and enabled them to pay off all of their debts from the two years before. And they planted peanuts from then on and prospered greatly. And you know what they did? They actually spent some of their new wealth to erect in the town square a monument to the boll weevil. And this is true. It's that somebody's shaking their heads. I know military folks will know this. It's, it's in there. And, um, and so, yeah, one of the guys in our, in our second service, Bill Weaver, who was a, a, a helicopter pilot in Vietnam, says, yeah, I remember that. I've been there. There it is in the town square. They did. But I thought about that is that, you know, if it hadn't have been for the boll weevil, they never would have discovered the peanuts and, and, and how to do that. They learned that even out of disaster, there can be something great that comes out of it. These folks had what you call big picture perspective, didn't they? And they didn't see the boll weevil as simply a reason that their crops failed and that they had to mortgage their farms and lost so much. They saw a bigger picture. Um, they saw the pest as a pointer to something different, something unique, something that helped them see and attain a way that they had never seen before and, and before this pest had shown up in their lives. And by erecting a monument in the town square, they wanted others to see this big picture perspective and not to forget about that for the future. And so the story was bigger than the farming. The story was bigger than agriculture or economics. It was about real life and life lessons and how we can learn from those. So thinking about that story, when in your life have you experienced a very difficult situation that you've gone through personally and because of it, you look back on that, maybe not at the time, it's taken a little bit of time in the rear view to kind of process all that, but as you look back on that, you go, man, that was really an opportunity for me to grow as a person, and it was also an opportunity for me to share my experience with somebody else so that they can learn from that growth as well. We probably all have those, but do you share your story? 
Do you tell people about your experience? Do others see that you have a big picture perspective, even through those difficult times you've had? Well, today we're going to continue our series, like I said, in Paul's letter to the Philippians. As I mentioned last week, that Paul was under a house arrest of sorts, and he had uh, appealed all the way to Caesar, and he has been on his journey. He has gone on this long, crazy journey to Rome, and he's made it. But they said, until Caesar will actually hear your case, you're going to be on house arrest, and we're going to chain a guard to you every day, and you can't go and do what you come. Some people can come see you, but you're going to be chained to this guard so we can watch you and make sure that you don't leave or, or try to skip town or whatever. But Paul didn't just sit there. And, and out of this imprisonment, which we believe was about two years, Paul wrote what we know as the prison epistles or letters. And he says, I'm not just going to sit here and feel sorry for myself. Yeah, this is a bad situation. I want to be out going on more missionary journeys, starting more churches, but I'm not going to let that get me down. And I'm going to write letters while I'm here to all these churches that I've started all over the different parts of the world and check on them. And he would hear back from different um, people who would journey there and come back as messengers and say, hey, this is what's going on in that church in Philippi or Ephesus or whatever, and this is what they're struggling with. This is some of the things they're going through. And Paul would write them back and say, hey, I hear about this. This is what you need to know from a doctrinal standpoint, from Christ's word standpoint on how you deal with these situations uh, that's, that are going on in your church. And uh, he wrote these letters, and then he would just kind of encourage them and say, I know that you know I'm in prison, but don't be discouraged. God's doing amazing things in spite of that. God's kingdom is still out there growing. The gospel message is going out, and I want you all to be encouraged by that. So he didn't just stay put. He says, I'm going to do something. So I want us to read from chapter 1. We started it last week, uh, but we're going to look at chapter 1 of Philippians, and we're going to start in verse 12 and go down through verse 19. Thank you all for having that on the screen for us. Now listen to what Paul says as he continues this letter. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul's writing this encouraging letter, and we're going to kind of unpack that a little bit. But this, a lot of commentators say, was Paul's favorite church. He started this church from the very beginning. It started, and after shortly after he met some some believers there and, and started baptizing people and bringing the gospel news. If you know, we talked about it last week in Acts. We read about where a riot started. Just about everywhere that Paul went, he started a riot because he was bringing in this good news of the gospel that was supposed to bring people peace, but it, it started a riot. Why was that? Because the truth, because of his exclusivity, makes it causes tension among people, and they have to go, wait a minute, this is where I'm living, this is what I'm believing, and now someone's thrown something else in there that I wasn't ready for. How do I handle that? And some people 
you know, wanted to kill him and get him out of town, but it didn't stop Paul. But ultimately, he has had to, to leave that town. But he loves these people because, and we'll look at this a little bit later, uh, later as we go through the letter, but Paul loves these people because they supported him adamantly and were very generous to him, even when other churches weren't so sure about Paul and weren't so sure they were going to give him support. But this church always believed in Paul and what he was doing. They were very close. So Paul talks about, you know, that all these things that have happened to me are actually uh, furthering the gospel. They're helping it to go out. And he says he's under house arrest. So he always had a Roman guard with him. And so he's restricted in what he can do. But notice Paul doesn't complain about the guard with him in the letter. Like, oh, isn't this terrible? I ha-. He does mention his change because he wants them to know, this is why I'm not going around and, and continuing to do what I did before. But he says, I, I have a guard that's with me. He saw the guard, whoever it was each day, as an opportunity to talk about Jesus and to share with them the gospel message. And that's kind of cool when you think about it because different guards would be assigned to him and go, hey, you're up to go, you know, uh, get chained to the Jesus guy over there. And, uh, and, and Paul's like, oh, I'm going to talk to this guy. I'm going to share my testimony. I'm going to share my story with him. So the guard assigned to him probably was curious about Paul and why he was arrested. Because once they start talking with Paul, they're going, this guy's talking about the Son of God. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ. Why does this guy need to be chained up? He seems like a good guy to me. And they're talking about these different things. And day after day, if you're chained to somebody, you're probably going to talk to them, right? You're going to talk about your backgrounds, what you believe, what you don't believe, how things are going in culture and in society and all these things. So Paul says, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to talk to each guard and share the good news with them. And Paul also let his Philippian brothers and sisters know that this situation has served, as he calls it, to advance the gospel the good news that sets us free. Now, you think about that. The good news that sets you free, then why are you in chains, Paul? How is that good news? But Paul is saying, yes, it seems bad on the outside, but the bigger picture perspective is that God has me here in Rome. We know in Acts that he says, I'm sending you to Rome, and you will get, a, uh, you will get an, an, an audience with, this, uh, with the leader, this Caesar guy. You're going to get an audience with him, and it's going to open up doors for the gospel. And Paul understands this perspective. And so Paul got to tell his story, his testimony. Whoever hears that has to think about and respond to some way to that information. Just like this morning as Christine was talking about her friend that she was able, uh, that met somebody through your ministry who went to breakfast with her and goes, I want to know more about what you believe and why you believe it. It gives you an opportunity. Once you hear that, it's in your head, it's in your heart, and you have to process that. And that's the good news of taking the gospel to people. We present it to them, but ultimately they have to process it in their minds, in their hearts, in their souls. Says, How does this really make a difference to me? How can it change my life? And you think about it. Paul says two things have happened as a result. It has become clear through the whole palace guard. So this palace guard... And I don't know all the details about that, but there were obviously guards at this palace that were saying, your job is to go and watch for this, and they, they took turns. So the whole palace guard, there was obviously many different guards assigned to watch Paul, and Paul has talked to each one of these. And the guards, you know, have talked and compared notes. He goes, hey, you know that Paul guy? Didn't you have to get chained to him for a whole day? Yeah, what's up with that? Why is he in chains? He's telling me the story. Did he tell you his story? Did he tell you his testimony about on the road to Damascus to arrest Christians and kill them? Did he tell you about holding the coats while they stoned Stephen? Yeah, he told me that too. And then this light came, and all of a sudden Jesus directly spoke to him. Do you think that's true? I don't know, but man, he's convinced, didn't he? He's convinced this guy named Jesus rose from the dead, and it's obvious that it's changed his life. And he tells everybody about it. So you know the guards talked about it. 
And Paul made sure, I may not can change the fact that I'm chained. I, I may not can change when I get an audience before Caesar. But you know what? Until then, I'm going to do what I can for the gospel message. And that's what he's doing. Uh, an NFL player was a, a running back several years back. Sherman Smith, y'all might remember, he played for the um, Seattle. Uh, he's played for Seattle Seahawks. And uh, he was a big guy, if you remember. They called him the Sherman Tank, and he was a running back, and he was a big guy, about 6'4", uh, well over 220 pounds, and he, you know, he could run people over. But he also had a very strong faith. And uh, I think it was at the end of the 90s, into the 2000s, he was doing really well for the Seahawks. He was loved by that team, very popular there. And all of a sudden, he gets traded to the San Diego Chargers. And this was very difficult for him. And even though he had a strong faith, he was really wondering about, why am I gone from a place where I really love and I'm connected there to I get traded? Now, you know, we know in the NFL that just happens. But he got traded. And soon after getting traded to the Chargers, he tore his knee up just after about a couple of weeks. And he was really frustrated. And while he was in rehab, he was really questioning, God, why did you ship me out to San Diego? Things were going good in Seattle, but why did you send me here? I'm really kind of trying to figure out. Then I get hurt. But while he was going through rehab, he became friends with a, a younger guy on the team. His name was Miles McPherson. Some of y'all may have heard that name. But Miles was a, a, a partier, kind of an NFL, typical NFL guy who was uh, you know, popular and loved to party and do all that kind of stuff that some of the athletes do. But since then, he was able to, through his rehab and befriending Miles McPherson, he was, being able, he was able to lead him to the Lord. And obviously, Miles, later, uh, Miles McPherson became a, a youth evangelist and has gone all over the world and shared the good news of Christ. And again, there's that answer. Why did you move me from what was familiar and going great to somewhere where I wasn't familiar and it wasn't going great? Well, think about it. He was preparing him for something greater. And there's all those kind of stories out there where you have to see the bigger picture of what God's doing in our lives. So back to the text, and Paul gives us a second reason. And because of my chains, so obviously the, 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 the message is going out through the palace guard, but he says, and because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He says, as a result of what's happened to me, people are hearing about my situation. They go, man, Paul's been preaching the gospel message, and guess what? He's in chains now. He's in prison because of that. He's waiting to go before Caesar, and Caesar could kill him for this. Do we want to do anything, or are we just going to sit on our hands and be fearful? But Paul says, no, it's making people more confident. People are saying, we know Paul was going all over the world in these missionary journeys and sharing the good news of Christ, but he can't do that now because he is in prison. Now, what are we going to do, sit in fear till he gets out and tells us what to do? No, we're going to do something about it. If he's in prison in Rome and he's sharing the gospel there, then we need to step up where we are and share that good news. And we're going to continue to pray for him, and we hope he gets let go, but until then, we're going to be doing the same thing that God has called us to do, and that's share the good news of Christ and how it's changed our lives. I read an article earlier this year in Christianity Today about every day in our world, 13 Christians worldwide are killed because of their faith. Think about that. Every day. And 12 Christians every day are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. And this came from a 2021 World Watch List report. And this watch list basically tells an accounting. It's called an Open Door Open Doors Ministry of the top 50 countries where Christians are the most persecuted for following Jesus. And David Curry, who's the president of Open Doors, says, You might think 
The list is all about oppression. But the list is really about resilience. The numbers of God's people who are suffering should mean that the church is dying, that Christians are keeping quiet, that they're losing their faith and turning away from one another. But that's not what's happening. The church continues to grow in spite of that. People are not losing their faith. They're actually, people's faith is growing. They're getting stronger. They're not turning away from one another. And he says, instead, in living color, we see the words of God recorded in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The power of God and the good news 2,000 years later continues to go and is at work throughout the world. And it's good to hear that. It's encouraging to hear that. Well, why is it? How is it that strong and powerful even amidst persecution? Well, there's real power in the message to transform lives in there. When people see a life transformed, they're connected to that. That guy used to be this way. That lady used to be this way. But now they say they're a Christian, and there's something different about them. It's obvious something has changed. It gives them hope. And the power of us sharing our personal stories of how Jesus has changed us is the story we need to tell other people. That's how it multiplies. And that's how even in persecuted areas, the church grows and does not and will not ever die because God's in it. In verses 15 through 18 in our text, Paul mentions something. You probably caught this where it was a a little negative talk. First, he's all about how great it is, but he was saying, Hey, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. But this is his response. But what does it matter? And you're going, what do you mean, what does it matter? If there's selfish people preaching the gospel, we got to stop them. He goes, no, what does it matter? He says, the important thing that is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And he has this, again, big picture perspective of it's, it's bigger than me. It's bigger than that. It's about Christ being preached. And he says, I will continue to rejoice. And notice that Paul knew something about what was happening with this potentially negative thing that was going on. He's heard about it. And so he mentions it in the letter to the, to the uh, Philippians. He's going, hey, I want you all to know I'm aware of this. Y'all been talking about it. And he says they do it. There's some people out there doing it out of envy and rivalry, uh, rivalry and uh, selfish ambition. They're insincere and they're supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. You're like, what does that mean? Well, maybe there's some folks out there who are preaching and going, Paul's in jail. Now, he was the popular one in the area. Everybody wanted Paul to come to their church and teach. But now that he's in jail, we're, you know, we're, we're going to be the top dog now. Now, I want to just kind of sidetrack for a minute here. We as preachers are human, you know, and we have our deals too. And there's sometimes, and I remember during uh, COVID when y'all, I, I would come to church and do my video, and the first ones were awful. I remember I had the camera and all these weird angles and stuff. But I remember doing that. Then I would go home and I'd watch, you know, a couple of services at home, and you got to see all these other people, and, and, and you start comparing yourself like, man, am I as cool as that guy? He's got on ripped jeans and I don't. Maybe I need to up my game a little bit. <laughs> I need to get those black rim glasses so I look cool, you know. And, and then I started judging me. He's got tattoos, but, you know, I'm, I'm really a better preacher. I don't care what glasses, you know, all that stuff. And then you go, man, what are you doing, Craig? And it made me focus on what is this guy or what is this gal preaching about? Are they preaching the gospel message or not? And it made me get off of what they looked like and say, what are they preaching? 
And when I did that, guess what? I would either hear the message or not hear the message. And I was really encouraged when I got off the boat. But this can happen. And Paul's saying, I know that goes on out there. And Paul says this in several of his letters. He goes, it doesn't matter. This guy did this. This guy did that. We are seed planters. We are waterers. But ultimately, God gives the growth. And so that's why his response here is, there's some good people out there preaching for the right reasons. And they also understand that I'm out here defending the gospel. And that's great. But whether good or bad, if they're preaching the gospel message... The important thing is, is it's getting out there. What a, what a great perspective, right? And that's hard for us to get, even as adults, to get to that point. But he has that big picture perspective. He didn't allow this to overshadow the positive growth of the gospel getting to people. And you notice that he doesn't name names. He knows probably who's what's going on. But Paul doesn't name names specifically in this one. He just says, I'm going to just be very positive about this. And I'm not going to worry about it. He focused on the positive and what really matters. And so Paul has this great attitude, and it's a life lesson for our culture. We, too, should stop focusing on all the negative. And that's what happened last year, wasn't it? There was a lot of focus on the negative stuff, and people have opinions about it. But ultimately, somebody's going to go, okay, I get it. Yeah, that was bad. But what positive has happened? Let's focus on that, and let's move forward. And it's another life lesson for us to have a bigger picture perspective. John Ortberg wrote a book called, this is a great title, Of All the Places You'll Go, except when you don't. Isn't that a great title for a book? And he talks about a young man years and years ago uh, was from an impoverished background, and he dreamed of having a better life from the way he grew up so poor that him and his family. And he says uh, he had that existence, and he didn't want to go through that as he grew up. He wanted to have a, a better life for himself. So he saved all he could, and he went deeply into debt to start Um, a grocery in a little town called New Salem. And his partner, he had a partner go in with him, and he found out later that his partner had a severe alcohol problem. And it just didn't work. And he says he ended up going so far in the hole that it referred to his financial obligations as the national debt. And he gave up on ever being successful as a businessman, and it took him more than 10 years to pay off that failed business. But he went into law and then into politics, and in 1860... That same young man, Abraham Lincoln, was elected president of the United States. And he was an avid Shakespeare fan, and his favorite quote was from Hamlet. There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we may. He came to believe this deeply in his own life, but also about the nation he led. His entire second inaugural address is an amazingly profound reflection on how God was at work during the Civil War in ways more mysterious and profound than any human being could fathom. What a loss it would have been, not just to him, but to the whole nation if the doors of that little grocery store he started in New Salem hadn't closed. Think about that. That failure turned into something as a bigger picture perspective. And God put him in the White House, so to speak, Whereas the President of the United States during a very difficult time, and it's hard for us to understand how difficult that time was, and he was constantly trying to bring the nation together over some really, really difficult times. But what about us today? Do people hear our stories of difficulty and sense bitterness, self-pity, resentment, and how fair, unfair life is? Like, oh boy, here comes Craig again. He's going to tell that story about what happened to him during that time. Oh, here we go. And he's resentful, and he's bitter, and here we go. we got to hear it and how unfair life is. And you just go, oh, boy, don't want to. You, know, you just want to call a taxi and get away because here comes Craig with that story. But there's other people who have stories of, of horrific things that have happened in their life, and they're joyful, aren't they? 
And when you see them, you light up. And yeah, I've already heard this story, but I want to hear it again. Because, man, they tell you how it went, but how God has got them through it and how much better their life is and how God has transformed them and how people have helped them along the way. And they just have this joy about them. And you want to be around them, and, it, and it's contagious, isn't it? I was thinking about this as we were at a camp last week, and thank you all for praying for me because I had third, fourth, and fifth graders in a cabin for three nights. It was awesome. <laughs> no, they were really good kids, but it's just hilarious. Um, to listen to stuff they talk about. But one of these kids is Mike's grandson, uh, Solomon, and he is uh, such a great kid. He, they adopted him from China, and he doesn't have feet or hands like we do. He's got just parts of feet and hands. But this kid doesn't let anything. So one night, he's brushing his teeth, and I was like, this is going to be great, because I've never seen him brush his teeth before. <laughs> so how's he going to do that? So he gets out his little kit, you know, and it's brand new tube of toothpaste, and he puts his um, uh, toothbrush between his feet, which are not complete feet, and he holds it there, and he pulls out his new tube of toothpaste, puts it in his mouth, and he untoes the top, and he goes, hey, Craig, I need your help on this, because you know that little foil thing over the top of it? He couldn't do that, but he wasn't too proud to ask for help, so I pulled it off, and I handed it back, and I want to watch this. So then he, he, hold, and he, he holds that toothbrush between his feet, and he takes his other hands, which don't have fingers, and he squeezes that on there, and he starts brushing his teeth, and I'm like, wow. And this kid played gaga ball. And this kid played, uh, uh, you know, went swimming. He did everything all the other kids. Nothing stops him. And I'm just going, this is what we're talking about. I'm thinking about this sermon and how he's got a big picture perspective. Yeah, I don't have everything the other kids do, but it ain't going to stop me. He's got an amazing story. And he, every time I see that kid, he, ins he inspires me. Who needs that today? We all need that, don't we? We all need that today to have that big picture perspective that, yes, this is not, and it doesn't mean we candy coat and sugar coat difficult things that are going on in our families, in our personal lives, or even in our churches, but that we attack those head on and say, God, help us through this. We've seen how you've done it in the Bible. We know you can work through this. You've seen how you've done it through other people. We know you can do it with us, and we hope to it. So this morning, we're going to offer an invitation. Maybe somebody needs to say, you know what? I want to have that big picture perspective. I want that hope that Paul had in spite of his imprisonment, that that little boy named Solomon has in spite of his uh, not having what everybody else has as far as uh, body parts that work exactly the way they were intended to. So if you want to do that, we want to offer an invitation this morning. But I know of a great story um, this morning. We got one that's coming to be baptized. I'm very excited about that. But there may be somebody else.